Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. The Lord be with you. Well, Father, we thank you for this time we have to look into some detail on some of the books of the Old Testament. We ask that you would uh, open up our minds, open up our eyes, that we could um, get a better understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are on chapter 4, the Old Testament, not chapter 5. Um, and those Roman numerals, right? No, not really. Um, so what we're going to be doing in the next, so th- this might be a two-week um, chapter because it's a bit longer. Um, but we're going to be doing for the next couple chapters is look at, uh, by case study, ways that we might study some of the individual books. So um, we, one of the things we need to remember is that while the Bible is indeed one book, especially the way we have it in English, it's also a library of 66 books, right? And originally, each of these books would have been separate from one another, um, you know, if you, if you uh, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, where each, each of these had different a scroll per book, basically. Now, some of the books are combined, but, but you know, that's, that's the way that goes. This format we have is uh, technically called a codex, and that makes navigating a lot easier than the scrolls of, of the old days. Um, and so we really couldn't have it all in one until we had that technology to do a codex, which is a lot um, newer than the Bible itself. So let's look, let's look at um, chapter 4, the books of the, of the Old Testament. Um, so um, one of the things that's important to see is that if we're going to look at uh, one of the books of the Old Testament, one of the individual books, it's good to try to read the whole thing in a setting if possible. Um, that could be difficult with some of the longer books, um, but um, these days you have ways to listen to it. Um, I have an app on my phone called, I think, Bible.is or something like that that has, um, you could download the different ways to read it. You could get it on CD. Um, A company called Faith Comes By Here and used to distribute New Testament on CD. You know, used to kind of go around like the Gideons do. And so there's ways to do that. Um, Some of them are better than others. But um, whenever I do this, whenever I try to read through one of the books, um, I might start reading it, but then switch to listening to it as I'm going around doing my, my, my daily work. Because um, that, can, that can help as well. Um, so that's, that's something that can be very, very helpful. And, and you know, he says here under, under the heading of Genesis, he, he says, The Bible suffers much from our partial and fragmentary use of it. And that's very true. We can lose the flow of a particular book because we're breaking it up into bite-sized chunks or we treat it like sound bites rather than looking at the whole book in context. So um, we're not going to be able to look, of course, at every book in the Old Testament, but Griffith Thomas gives us some um, case studies. So let's first look at, um, and, at Genesis. So he says, um, as we read through Genesis, we cannot help noticing a frequently recurring phrase, these are the generations or the book of the generations. And he tells us, you see this phrase 10 times. Um, he doesn't give us where that is because he wants us to find that out for ourselves, <laughs> which is good, which is good. And so what we find out is that Genesis is a compilation of family records, right? It's... it's um, 
These family records become the chief sources for the writer's information. Traditionally, we would say that Moses was the writer of Genesis. Um, So this is not a biography. It's not really a history book, but biographical and historical things are what are used to create Genesis. Um, He says, we see that chapter 1-1 really is the key to the book. This is about halfway down page 29. Um, it is a book of origins, the genesis of things, the origin of creation, man, the Sabbath, marriage, sin, grace, races, the chosen people, and the family records are utilized to illustrate God's plan in redeeming mankind through one people, one tribe, one family. And so we see the way that this works out in Genesis is that um, Abraham becomes kind of that turning point in the story, right? Right? We start um, with a, uh, a very big picture, and it narrows down until we get to Abraham and his family. And then we, are, we trace one branch of Abraham's family until we get to um, uh, Jacob's line. And then we kind of follow Jacob's entire family for the rest of the book. And then what it does is that... Um, it sets up the stage for the second book of Exodus. And so um, there's basically 10 parts to Genesis, and each of these 10 parts is, uh, is, is broken up by this phrase, these are the generations, or the book of the generations of fill in the blank. Have, have any of y'all studied Genesis in detail before? Like gone through a Bible study where you hung out in Genesis? Um, has anybody sat down and read the 50 chapters in, in a setting or two before? I, I have not. <laughs> that's, it's, a, it's a big chunk, but it's, it's something to try. Um, okay, so that's Genesis. Any, any, um, anything we want to um, uh, touch on in Genesis before we get into Exodus? Okay. Um, so yeah, look at those 10 sections Um, try to master the facts associated with them, and then you see the growth of history. Starts with Adam, spreads out to to the race, contracts again to Abraham, and then develops into Israel in Egypt to set the stage for Exodus. So Exodus. We end up breaking Exodus into three parts. I think this is a really good way he did this. Um, And this is on page uh, 30 and 31. Um, We start with the... um, Brief outline here, we have um, the history, which is going to be um, Egypt to Sinai. So that's, that's everything from the actual Exodus story itself until they get to Sinai. That's chapters 1 through 18. That's the easy part of Exodus, right? When we, um, when we read through it, we're usually we, we start to fall off right around the end of chapter 18. And then we have these general laws, 19 through 24. Um, 19 is, well, what begins chapter 19? Do you all remember? The Ten Commandments, that's right. And then the next several chapters elaborate on the Ten Commandments. And then those last, um, what is that, 15 chapters, uh, 25 through 40, are all about setting up the construction of the tabernacle and the details of worship. That's where it's really easy to get bogged down in Exodus. That's the tough part, right? Okay. Um, Next we have Leviticus. um, If you have this copy of the book, he did, they did not uh, format the word Leviticus very well, so it's, it's <laughs> kind of about a few lines down, page 
20:31 we have Leviticus. He says this, consider this as follows and read it in light of the epistle to the Hebrews. Well, that's very interesting. Um, have you ever done that before? I looked at Exodus, but kind of had Hebrews in the other hand when you're looking at Leviticus, rather. Leviticus. That's a really good exercise if you're going to study Leviticus. Um, so we break that up into five groups. We, have, we begin with the offerings, um, those first seven chapters. Then we talk about the priesthood, which is a logical outgrowing of the offering. So it's who's doing the offering. It's the priests, right? Um, laws of cleanness and uncleanness. Um, laws of holiness, which, which legal, logically flow out of that clean and unclean stuff. Then we have the feasts, um, chapter 23, and then um, a bunch of general laws at that point. Um, have, have anybody, has anybody done a, a detailed study of Leviticus before? Have you ever done that? Oh, you might, you might do that. It's, um, it's the kind of thing that, that can get very... Um, it can be a little difficult because there are so many laws in there, so much difficult stuff with the uh, offerings, the worship details. Uh, but, but do that with a good study Bible. Um, do that with looking for those pictures of Christ. Because remember we said that Christ explains in his priesthood the ceremonies of the law of the Old Testament, right? And Leviticus is where we get the details, most of the details of those ceremonies. Um, we're going to skip numbers and go to, to Deuteronomy. We're still on page 31 here. Uh, Deuteronomy is the second law. That's what it means uh, because he's restating the law right before they get into the promised land. Um, and and uh, he gives us an outline, a four-part outline, where we recite God's goodness, and so um, that's largely saying what God has done for them, right? First four chapters. And then we're going to review the law for that new generation, and that's um, the bulk of the book. Uh, that's why it's called Deuteronomy, because it's the second law. They're renewing the law. Um, we have a new generation, and so they need to hear it again. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, then they renew the covenant. We have a new generation. They're going to renew the covenant with the new generation. That's chapters 27 through 30. And then we have the end of Moses' life, the uh, last three, three or four chapters of Deuteronomy. Anybody done a detailed study of Deuteronomy before? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I find Deuteronomy's a, a little bit easier to deal with than Leviticus and Numbers um, because, because it is... Um, it does kind of contract a lot, it, though it reviews a lot of the same content, it does it in a more abbreviated fashion. Uh, it's done in the context of a long speech, most of it by Moses. Um, so you might, you might check that out. Okay, then we're going we're gonna to skip over to the books of Samuel, um, page 32. Um, he says, our present books of Samuel were originally one book without a break, and when regarded as such, they afford an excellent illustration of the purpose and method of Bible history, which is not to write history in full, but to write it with a definite object, including only what is necessary for the accomplishment of that end. What's that mean? Um, Samuel's the story about King David. It's not about all the details of the history, but it's telling David's story. And so only the things that are going to be important to that story are going to be in uh, the books of Samuel. Um, the reason why it was originally one book, but it got broken up into two, is because Hebrew is a lot um, 
shorter language than Greek. It doesn't have any vowels. It only has consonants. It's very compact. And so when it was in scroll form, you just had the scroll of Samuel. But when it gets translated into the Greek, um, we're talking somewhere in the 3rd to 1st century B.C., um, Greek does have vowels. Greek is a language not dissimilar to ours. And it was a really big book, so they had to break it up into two. And we kept it that way um, in English for the same reasons. So um, he, he, he says we need to notice that David is the predominant character. Everything else is leading to him. So Samuel and Saul at the beginning of 1 Samuel are basically brought in to set the stage of that transition from, he calls it the theocracy to the monarchy. What's that mean? What's theocracy to the monarchy mean? Yes, yeah, because in the time of the judges, um, it's really the, the um, you know, God is the king. They're not listening to him very well, but um, they don't have a king, and it's really almost religious leaders that are running the country. Um, uh, judges come up as military leaders as necessary, but everything is revolving around the worship of God, and theoretically, God is the king speaking through his prophets. The problem is that people aren't listening. And what do we see in Judges, that refrain in Judges? There was no king, and everyone did as he pleased. And so Samuel becomes the, the, the uh, in Samuel we get the, the, the monarchy set up when we have David's line um, in particular. Um, so we don't have a whole lot with Saul, with Saul's kingship. We don't have a whole lot with um, Samuel's judgeship, Samuel being the last of the uh, prophet judges, um, but we have a whole lot with David. Um, and so he gives us an outline from <clears throat> one of uh, uh, um, a, 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 a uh, Bible study tool that was extant in his time. So we have um, Samuel, 1 Samuel 1 through 7, which is the close of the theocracy. So that's that last period of Samuel's judging as we're transitioning into the monarchy. Uh, the foundation of the monarchy with Saul being the first king, um, that's 8 through 31. Um, David's of uh, 1 Samuel, David's reign over Judah only, the first four chapters of 2 Samuel. David's reign over all Israel, and that's the rest of the book. Um, and he says, this outline with its symmetrical threefold subdivision in each case clearly reveals the Davidic purpose of the whole. For David appears as early as chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, about halfway through um, that foundation of the monarchy part. Um, and he was God's choice and would have been the first king except for the people's self-will. Remember the people go to Samuel and say, we want a king like our neighbors. And so Saul gets chosen because he's the king that the people want, not the king that the people should have, right? Um, and, uh, and Saul turns out not to be a great king, to, to say the least. Um, and any, any, any thoughts, comments, questions on, on, on so far before we move, move on into Kings and Chronicles? Okay. Um, he says, for Kings and Chronicles, we are on page 33. Here we have another instance of the religious purpose of the Bible history. The larger space devoted to several monarchs shows the importance of these reign from the point of view of religion and um, God's kingdom. 
There are six monarchs whose reigns are like pivots on which the religious history turns. These should be discovered and they're precise, important, considered. So what he's saying is we have all these long lists of kings in Kings and Chronicles, right? But there are six kings who seem to be really important for the purpose of those books because they, they represent really um, turning points, watersheds in the story of Israel from, from, from God's kingdom's perspective. And it's, it's funny that, you know, the secular historian would not have chosen these guys typically. Um, you know, we see, for example, he doesn't talk about this, but in um, archaeology, we have a lot of um, stuff from the time of Omri, who was the guy that, that precedes Ahab, right? And Omri gets like a paragraph, Ahab gets a whole lot more. Um, and, and the archaeological evidence was that this was a very important period in, in, um, in that kingdom. We get almost nothing in the Bible because um, Ahab's wickedness is more important than Omri's successes from a, from a material standpoint. Um, all we really hear from Omri is that he was a bad guy who turned the people to idolatry. That's all we really hear in the in, uh, in, in Book of Kings. Um, these are difficult. He says it's not so easy to analyze these books. Um, the, he says, perhaps the contents are best studied under the names of the kings recorded used, using chronicles as supplementary to kings. Um, that's, that's one way of doing it. Uh, the way that our ACNA's um, proposed daily office lectionary does it is they try to break kings and chronicles into one story, and they, and they, and they really do use chronicles to supplement kings. So we get a lot from the books of kings, not a whole lot from Chronicles, and Chronicles is kind of inserted at different places in that lectionary. And part of that's because they are trying to show um, the, the big story rather than these two points of view in detail. Um, I, find, I found last year going through the whole Bible that uh, Chronicles was the most difficult of the Old Testament passages for me because it's so much just kind of a list of things. And so it might be easier to um, kind of read Chronicles as a supplement to Kings when you're studying these things. Um, kings is essentially from the perspective of the prophets. Uh, you see that, that the prophets are really driving the story in, the, in Kings. Uh, Chronicles seems to be from the perspective of the returning exiles and specifically the priests that are really setting things up when the exiles return. Uh, probably Ezra is, is the guy that's, that's probably behind Chronicles. Traditionally, he is seen as the writer of Chronicles. Um, just like Samuel, uh, Chronicles and Kings were each one book originally get broken up because of their long, um, they're, they're a lot longer when it gets translated to Greek and then later um, into, into Hebrew. Something that can be very helpful with Kings and Chronicles is having from a study Bible or from online um, a timeline uh, because they'll, they'll kind of go back and forth between the two kingdoms a lot. And so it's, it's, it's easy to lose track of where things are because there's overlap in these two, you know, going from Judah and, and Israel, there's overlap. And the way it jumps back and forth, you can get lost in terms of the timeline. So that, that's something that can be very helpful. Um, we then move on to the book of Job. Ah, that's, that's, uh, this is the one that in, if you're in a, in a Bible as literature class, they always want you to do in college. They, everybody wants to do Job, right? <laughs> um, 
we see again that five-fold, uh, we're on page 34, by the way. We see that five-fold treatment. It breaks up into five sections. We have that introduction in uh, chapters one through three. We have Job and the three friends, chapters four through 31. That's kind of the bulk of the book. Uh, Job and Elihu, that fourth friend who kind of shows up and um, has something to say. And then we have um, God popping in and having his say from 38 to 41. It's interesting, God doesn't address Elihu. God kind of ignores him. Um, Elihu seems to be the youngster who's talking out of turn and nobody uh, <laughs> pays much attention to him, poor guy. And then chapter 42, we wrap it all up with the conclusion. Um, he, he suggests reading Job in the revised version rather than the King James. Remember um, when... Uh, when Griffith Thomas is writing, the revised version is really the only English alternative. Um, but, but yeah, read, read Job in a more modern uh, translation. It, it's, you'll get lost in the woods with the King James, most likely. Um, I mean, some people won't, but, but most folks will. And if you can, do it at one setting so that you kind of get that back and forth. Um, when we break this one up into chapters, we lose it. The way our, our lectionary in the 28, our, our 1945 lectionary breaks up Job is atrocious. It um, <coughs> skips around and it robs it from all the context and basically cherry picks passages to turn it into like a collection of proverbs rather than the fight between these guys that it is. Uh, don't use the way that our 1928 lectionary breaks up Job. Don't do that. Um, try, try to read it in one in one setting when you study it, um, rather than doing it that way. Um, okay, you know, what's, what's the theme of Job? That problem of suffering in relation to the people of God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God let that happen? That's what we're going through. Uh, um, David Jeremiah did a whole uh, series on Job Good. And, yeah. And they do a good job on it. So if you listen to David Jeremiah. I don't remember which station. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. Here's his preset. Yeah, David Jeremiah is a really good Bible expositor, and so yeah, I, I would, I would imagine his treatment of Job is pretty good. So yeah. that's great. It was excellent. I never read. Really Understood Job until I read That's good. Yeah, that's 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 really good. That's that's very um, that's very helpful. Yeah, Job, Job can be easily confused. Um, he he says he says here um, if the book is mastered and read together with other portions of Scripture, such as Psalms thirty-seven and seventy-three and Hebrews twelve, much light will be cast on some of the gravest problems of life. I think that's really good. I mean, you know, the questions Job asks are very relevant, um, no matter what time period, which is interesting because it's really the oldest of our Old Testament books. It was written first. Um, but its issues are still very relevant today. Um, Psalms 37 and 73 and Hebrews 12 address some of that same stuff. So, um, yeah, definitely do that. I think that's good. Um, the Psalms, page 35, the great... Book of the Praises of Israel. Um, that's, that's what it means in the, in the Hebrew, I believe. Uh, Tehillim is the praises. Um, 
They are man's inspired response to God's revelation and are almost as acceptable today in their entirety as when they were first uttered because underlying all circumstances and changes, the relation of the believer to his God is ever much the same. That's true. You know, in, in our tradition, we have historically read through the Psalms every month for, during morning and evening prayer. Um, you know, we broke it into uh, morning and evening for a 30-day cycle. Um, if you can uh, do that, you'll, it'll be very beneficial for you. Modern lectionaries that kind of drop it down to, um, you know, one psalm a day, that's okay, but it's, you're not gonna, it's not going to be as good for you. Um, you're not going to get as much out of it. Um, one of the really good things about the new ACNA lectionary is that it did retain, it brought back the, uh, the 30-day cycle. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, um, the translation we have in our prayer book is actually older than the King James. It's the um, Coverdale translation, so it predates the King James. Um, Tyndale borrowed a lot of the Coverdale's stuff for that. Miles Coverdale was, was a writer. Um, and there was, when, when uh, the 1662 prayer book was getting, getting written, there was um, a debate in the Church of England, do we want to adapt the King James for the uh, Psalms or retain the Coverdale? And they decided to retain the Coverdale because it's so good for singing. Um, it's a very poetic, it's not always the, the most um, literal translation. I mean, uh, Hebrew scholars would have issues with Coverdale in certain places, but it's really poetic. And one of, probably the biggest weakness of it, in my opinion, is that it omits that verse zero, <laughs> the, uh, those, those um, kind of subheading parts that, that are actually in the text, you know, where it says like a Psalm of David when he fill in the blank. It does not have that, unfortunately. But we do see that the Psalms have been used devotionally by God's people forever and ever and ever. Uh, the, the, the Reformed historically um, would not use hymns. They would just use psalms or paraphrases of the psalms in their worship. Um, uh, but uh, the psalms are really good for worship. And even when we deal with some of those difficult psalms, like the, uh, the imprecatory psalms, those cursing psalms, um, those, those are there for a reason. We have on our YouTube channel a three-hour or so class in three parts that we did on the Psalms, praying the Psalms, um, a couple of years ago. So, uh, yeah, re revisit that. Um, if you've never found our YouTube channel, there's a little, looks like a little TV icon at the bottom of every page of our website, so you can find it that way. Um, we do see the Psalms break up into five books. Um, um, how, how those are broken up, he kind of gives, gives some, some reasoning for how it might have been broken up. Um, frankly, that's, that's a bit of conjecture. Um, there's, we don't know for sure why they're broken up the way they are. And so he gives a really good, um, almost simplification for, for a way we could look at that. And, and y'all can, can take, a, take a look at that on, on, your, on your own there. Um, let's see, do we push through? I think I think let's 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 stop right here. We got about five minutes. Uh, questions, comments, and then we and if, if there are none, we'll go into we'll look at proverbs. We're going to spill this over into next week, probably. Are there any more um, we must be we we must be. Oh, we have one left. Is that right? Okay. Um, does does anybody not have one? Do we need to order more books? Raise your hand if you if you. Okay. We, so there's our last one there. 
Um, Magda, you can borrow my, 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 you have one? Okay, you just haven't been bringing it. <laughs> That's on record, by the way, so. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, and so, okay, now everybody, everybody has a book at this point then? Okay, if, if, if y'all see someone new pops in that doesn't have one, let, let me know or let Pam know and we'll order some more. Um, so we've, I think we, we probably, we probably bought about uh, 40 at this point. So it's nice that, you know, they, they've been, they've been uh, all snatched up. That's wonderful. Um, okay. Any, anything else? Yeah, so, um, right, so, so I, I, there, there was always a priestly function even before the setting up of a Levitical priesthood in, in, when we look at the Old Testament, you kind of see people making offerings, and it seems, reading between the lines, that the way that that was going prior to the establishment of the Levitical priesthood was that the oldest son was the priest of the family. That seems to be the way that that was set up. Um, do you remember why the Levites end up getting the priesthood? Do you all remember that? They didn't get any land. Uh, well, they, they, the reason why they didn't get any land is because they got the priesthood. So, yeah, they, the, the, yeah, so that's the other way around. But they got the priest, they get the priesthood in Exodus. Um, and I, I, I believe it's during the golden calf. Um, it's, it's one of those major points of idolatry. Where the Levites are the yes with Phineas, well Phineas gets it later. Phineas gets it later. Um, this the, uh, I'm going to have to probably go back and double check all this. But one of those major things I do believe it is the golden calf incident. The Levites don't follow along, um, and the Levite so the Levites um, basically act as God's enforcers. And so because the Levites stayed faithful, the priesthood ends up being in their family. And what that looks like is that Aaron's family gets the priesthood and the rest of the Levites, because Aaron's one branch of Levi's family, right? The rest of the Levites end up getting um, the role of assisting in worship, almost like deacons or altar guild, that sort of thing today. Um, later on, Phineas, so, so Aaron has a handful of sons but for whatever reason, it seems that Phineas was excluded originally, his son Phineas. His son Phineas gets it later on because his son Phineas ends up being faithful when nobody else was. And that's in the, that's in the Moabites in Numbers, yeah, with um, the, the Baal Peor, Balaam and Balak and all that other stuff, if you all remember that story. Um, but, but it seems that before, because there were still sacrifices before the Levitical priesthood was set up, but it seems that, that that was done, every family had their own family priest at that, before that. That's what it seems like. I know it's a Jethro, which is not father-in-law, it's a priest of Midian. Uh-huh. And other people we meet, you know, like they had, you know, There's kind of a primitive priesthood, that, yeah. then there's a Levitical priesthood. Yeah. 
Right, and we see in Genesis, you know, um, Melchizedek, one of those uh, probable theophanies, one of those times when um, kind of a pre-incarnation appearance of, of the second person of the Trinity. Um, and, and Hebrews makes this case that Christ's priesthood is superior because it's not from that later development of the Levites, but it's from that older Melchizedek pattern um, where, where the priest and the king can be the same person. And because the kingship tends to be oldest sons, priests would have been those oldest sons. So prior to the Levites, priests and kings would have, they, you would have often had priest kings um, in, in the various people groups. Um, but, but then, of course, that gets separated to diff- two different tribes later on um, because of the people's sin. Um, okay, well, we are at 11 o'clock. Let's close there. We're going to pick up with Proverbs next week. Um, read through chapter 5, too, because if necessary, we'll spill into chapter 5. But we might just uh, finish up with the end of chapter 4 next week. And I will see you all in, uh, in Mass or uh, next week, as the case may be.